Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. If you've been in Bitcoin and crypto in the past decade, you've probably read or followed Twitter of Tur Demister, my guest today on the show. Tur is one of the most well-known people in the space and has been around since 2011, writing about Bitcoin and being one of the largest and most knowledgeable evangelists that I know on levels with Andreas Antonopoulos, who we also had on the show. Tur is the founder of Admin Capital, a Bitcoin Alpha Fund, and also a research group. I've noticed that over the years, he has a very out-of-the-box approach because of, you know, life experiences that he went through. He's able to combine academic rigor without a degree, actually. He doesn't have a degree. Very interesting. However, worked for many think tanks over the years. He has a great focus on historical patterns, but not just with Bitcoin and crypto. He has very, very solid, productive investment paranoia and a knack for exploring new territories and opportunities. He's been publicly writing and commenting about Bitcoin and macroeconomic trends since 2008, 2009. His investment newsletter, Macro Trends, was launched in 2011, and he ran it until 2013. It's a Dutch financial newsletter, very successful. He eventually passed it on before he moved to the U.S. A lot of his papers, for example, this 2011 paper, The Business Cycle, a definition, was published in the Spanish academic paper, Processos de Mercado, and a lot of his books that have been translated into many, many languages. So I urge you guys to enjoy this episode. And after it's over, do some research on Tur, T-U-U-R. Follow him on the Twitter and read his articles, they will reignite that spark if it's starting to wane when you're going through these bear markets. I'm Charlie Tram. I'll talk to you guys right after the ad. Stay tuned. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. 
So check it out. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna, and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours and please give them some love because they love me. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google App Stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm sitting here with Tur Demeester. Tur, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Charlie. Good to be here. Um, I'm really happy to have you on the show because I feel like you and I you know, we grew up completely different countries, completely different lives, completely different everything. But when we had first started talking and we met, I think it was 2013, it's like almost our our lives kind of like, um, I started noticing a lot of similarities in how we think, how you and I think and how, uh, you know, you perceive the world. And um, you're very much someone who has his opinions and then likes to to create hypotheses and figure them out. And, um, you know, I've, I've made stupid, uh, like thoughts or just, you know, it's like not stupid, but, uh, wrong ideas or future predictions, but there are very few people in the space who are able to make, um, who are able to make not predictions, but, um, thoughts and ideas of the future and kind of have them come out so accurate. Um, and, and I say this because I, when I, when I prepare for the show, I go back and I, and I do a lot of reading and I read 
a lot of your early articles, I, you know, I, I'm reading, you know, going back to 2012, I'm reading like Bitcoin seen through the eyes of a central banker, um, why you should invest in Bitcoin in 2012 and 2013. So, I mean, you were, uh, you know, a great, one of my favorites is why Bitcoin is the petroleum of our time. Some great articles. And so I want to, I want to first jump in because one of my favorite things on your website is you have this great graphic. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's called Bitcoin is retooling the financial industry in three phases. And I want to talk to you about these phases really quick. I'm going to read them off for our listeners if they're not in front of a computer. And I want to ask you about it to start off the show. So you talk about, um, and I want, when did you write this? When did you put out this graphic? Do you, do you, do you remember when you kind of wrote it? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, that was an article for Bitcoin magazine at the time. It was called why Bitcoin, they would like distribute it for free. I think I first met David Bailey in like, I think 2013. So I think it was, it was before that big run. But so it's so accurate. Like $100 it's so yeah. good. Like, so the, so the first, and I've never been able to like really break down the eras or years of, of Bitcoin act, you know, like even uh, convey that in words are, you know, with, you know, with good articulation. So, so you wrote the discovery phase was 2008. Okay, to actually, just to, I, sure. I don't want to uh, spread misinformation. I'm realizing what you're talking about is, is much more recent. Like the three phases that was, I think maybe like two years ago that, that, that I was just, I feel like I, I needed to convey that there are phases in Bitcoin and, 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 and that's, that was kind of the, what I thought you were talking about was the, the kind of potential Bitcoin price thing that was in Bitcoin magazine once upon a time. So you talk about the discovery phase and, and exchanges and custodians are unsafe, extremely high volatility, no derivatives, only spot market. Very true. Infrastructure phase, uh, 2013 to 2020, um, custodians and exchanges become safer, although insurance is still lacking. Daily volatility decreases substantially. And then, uh, you know, you're, we're looking at the introduction of futures, options, ETF swaps, and lending market. And then we go into the de deployment phase from 2020 to 2025. So my question is to you, what does that deployment phase look like? Yeah, well, I mean, it's always like the market always surprises. So it's 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 hard to like to know until we live there. Um, but so to me, it's kind of in my mind, what it is, is kind of 2020 is kind of the the Windows 1995 moment where like the internet was kind of fringy and all of a sudden families start to use it and we get like, a you know, kind of a threshold of 9, 10, 11% of the population that really uses it on a regular basis. And that is kind of the beginning of, of that, the, the mainstream adopting it. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I see that, and I don't think it'll be the same across the globe. It'll it won't be like this this giant wave that all of a sudden everyone switches on Bitcoin. It'll be it'll depend on the circumstances as well. I mean, the ah. price the price will probably you know it will drive adoption if the price goes up again a big run. I think we'll see a lot more adoption, but I think it's also depending on the, the circumstances of the country if they're tech savvy or less tech savvy if there's high inflation or not. But yeah, generally, I think that, you know, the period that's coming is is mainstreamization, if you will. That's very interesting because I think up until recently, the wave or the adoption of, of Bitcoin and, and, you know, for I guess for the sake of this conversation, 
I'm going to specifically use the word Bitcoin and crypto differently because most shows I'm able to just say the word Bitcoin and crypto kind of like, you know, as as the same thing in terms of the conversation, but it's different in this situation. So I want to tell my listeners that in this show, I'm going to be using the words Bitcoin and crypto with their specific meanings. So with the adoption of, of Bitcoin specifically, I think you're right in that um, over the next few years, we're going to see the adoption almost uh, almost like fracture in terms of like different continents or countries or regions have different levels of adoption. And then you may see, and tell me if this is, a, is a, if you disagree with me, I feel like we may see some regression in the next coming years of different countries uh, or different jurisdictions start to almost pull back and get a little scared and maybe start to like um, have negative reactions toward towards Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I think that like politically speaking, pretty much Bitcoin is legal in all the countries nowadays. Um you know, with maybe a few small exceptions, uh, holding Bitcoin is totally legal. I I see as Bitcoin goes mainstream that Bitcoin intolerance could really become like a political thing. Like it'll be like, like are you for or against? And like, and some major countries really may try to ban. I don't think they will succeed in the long run, but they may try to ban it. But like, how how I guess would you ban Bitcoin if you were the leader of a country? And you wanted to, you felt like your control was in peril. Um, do you go after like the toll booths or like, you know, the, the coin bases of the world or um, taxes? There are a lot of, I guess, different ways that you'd go about it. Yeah, it's like, you know, in the 30s with gold in, in the U.S., like they didn't say you cannot own a gram of gold because the, the governments, they want to avoid getting really embarrassed for, you know, and, and, and. And, and being seen as as being uh, you know authoritarian or doing overreach, and so it's it's more going to be or I imagine it, it'll be like you know if you own more than so much Bitcoin, you have to store it with a licensed Bitcoin bank, and this is to protect the public. And here is the bank, and then it'll be like you know the central bank of Bitcoin, and then you get a certificate. You know that'll be like because we we want to make sure we've seen these you know. Bitcoin exchanges go bankrupt and that's very disruptive. So we're going to take care of you. And so it's this kind of thing where sometimes you're not even aware that it's actually confiscation. It's more like, oh, no, you're just trading it for, you know, a token. <laughs> um, I mean, that could be one way to do it. So, so I think that and of course, some countries will just kind of do an outright ban, which uh, is a bit less sophisticated, but it could still scare people like it would scare um, companies into interacting with Bitcoin or paying out Bitcoin as a wage. It would, it would kind of push it underground. So that could definitely slow down adoption. There's a there's one thing in the discovery in your in that graphic that I disagree with, and that's about the exchanges and custodians. So um, I still feel that they're unsafe and I'm not happy. Um, I'm very vocal with, I try to be vocal about this too, is that um, exchanges have not gotten as safe as I'd like them to be. Uh, so you, you know, you, you were around with Mt. Gox, you were around with so many Cripsy, so many of the exchanges that exit scammed or got hacked or whatever, or claim they got hacked and they got, you know, they exit scammed instead. And it's probably so much now for you that you're almost uh, desensitized to it. Um, although it's, it's a shame whenever there are, you know, there are victims, but I guess to what I, what I don't like is that the narrative has changed in terms of exchanges and, have you seen that narrative change? Because it used to be 
Um, and you used to tweet this that, you know, it, it, all exchanges, even even exchanges themselves would say it, you know, like, don't keep money here. Um, deposit, trade, withdraw. But now the business models of the exchanges themselves incentivize keeping money on exchanges with staking and lending and things like that. I guess I'm not I'm not happy with the level of security that exchanges have, and they're still very much centralized. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done still. I mean, the the reason why I think that you could argue that they are safer in general is just that um, as you become bigger as a company and more mature, it, it just becomes harder to to have this exit plan because you, you're more public. Um, and, um, and, and also, you know, there's kind of this ethical race where eventually the market kind of figures out who the ethical business operators are. And I think we have some exchanges that are, you know, pretty ethically run. Um, and so that's what I mean is that like the, the low hanging fruit for scammers is, is, um, you know, is, is, is less low in terms of market share, like, you know, shady exchanges, they may still defraud people, I but they won't point, be yeah. to get as big a market share as they would have in, in the 2010s or 20, 2012s. Um, sorry, uh, yeah, um, exactly, uh, yeah. And so, um, but yeah, the, it's definitely true that we have a long way to go. Uh, right now, an exchange is like a black box, like you put your Bitcoin in there and you have no idea what the procedures are uh, to keep them safe. You have no idea if there's like, um, I mean, I guess you could kind of see if the fund, if, if there's an insurance fund where if they get hacked, they'll be able to pay back some of that. Um, but really you just, you just don't know how, you know, what will happen in the case of a hack. And, and also you don't even know if, if the reserves are there, which, you know, in the aftermath of Mongox, we have seen a few, um, audits kind of audits uh, it was pretty informal uh, but that's i mean that's now four or five years ago that that happened uh and 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 there's way and bitcoin is extremely transparency friendly like you can develop uh you know features and and code uh, that allows you to um to basically see if an exchange is full reserve while still protecting the privacy of uh, the deposit holders. And so I would like to see a lot more progress there. I'm pretty sure proof of keys is next week as we're talking about. Yeah, which is a great initiative, right? Great self-regulatory initiative right there. Boom. Yeah. No one told us to do that. That was the industry uh, itself that, that said we should do that. And, you know, I don't like to spend too much time talking about price in the markets um, because I like to go back in in time, and and we'll jump back, we'll jump into our our uh, time machine here in a second. Um, but it is the end of 2019, going into 2020, and um, I do like to talk about like you know going just looking back at the year and then going forward. I encourage my listeners to read your writings because they're very good, but they're also written. Um, you're, they're also written. They're also written um, in a way that. Um, you don't feel like you need to have a degree to read it there. You know, it doesn't it's not written. They're not written your articles and your writings as like textbooks. And that's good because I don't have a degree myself. So that's it's kind of to keep it comprehensible for me. Well, so that's what I was getting at. It's very interesting because, you know, I didn't know that until later on. And I guess I looked at you. I still look at you as a teacher. And um, it's so interesting that your whole life work is from experience itself. And you have a strong opinion on college degrees, as do I. Do you still hold those same opinions? Well, I mean, it, it's 
it, it's like it's academia definitely chases innovation. I think that I think academia is 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 going to be shaken up over the next few decades. I think that there is, a, especially if you think about how, in terms of monopolies, like you know, academia, um, especially in Europe, is heavily heavily subsidized, uh, and so you have all these professors that have tenure and. Um, and um, and so there's this kind of the cost is invisible, and in the U.S., to some respect, because of the money printing, the the um, the cost to borrow has been artificially low. But imagine getting like you know two three hundred thousand dollars in student debt if uh, if the interest rate is like ten percent. Like how many people would actually do that? So Dude, the, the whole country. Started, yeah, I, I can I I I can name you people right now that I know like that are close to me, not people that I talk to randomly, family that are drowning in, in student loan debt. And you know what the problem is, Tur? They've, they've resigned to be okay with it and accept that they'll be paying this off for the rest of their lives because it's simply unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, so so the debt is one aspect, but you could argue like you know it's a cycle, and and, and uh, it'll it'll just you know whatever they'll default on the debt, and 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 then but but there's I think there's something more fundamental happening where universities they were kind of the the you know how do you say this they were like the centers the, of knowledge, yeah, the temples of knowledge for thousands and they, of years they, they had the libraries right, and and that the knowledge was scarce, and you needed to get through the university to get to the knowledge and also i mean there were no podcasts there were no 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 pub, you know all these teachers were not publicly available so you kind of to get to to get to learn from the best you had to pay your dues and and kind of meet them face to face and i think that's a lot less necessary now you can you can you know i do think still that having a mentor is extremely valuable like i've had mentors and they were often university professors i mean like i i definitely don't want to cast a shadow on, on anyone and everyone who's who's involved in, in the university space. But I think that it's being challenged. Like that model is being challenged and it could shrink or unbundle. Like there's a lot of functions of a university that are now becoming available in different ways. Like one, one big thing was to network. Like going to an elite university meant that you were introduced to high quality people who then would further your career, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that now more and more, there's different, different ways to do that. The, um, the, the message has changed where it used to be university was the best, uh, way to move forward in your life when you finished high school. And if you didn't, you were like almost an outlier now, um, at least in, in the U S um, was it the same in, in, in Belgium, um, go, growing up? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I do think there is a little bit like a a class division, quote unquote, where like certain certain uh, neighborhoods and certain um, people, they just it's not on their radar that you would go to university. Like, if your dad's a butcher, you become a butcher, etc. Uh, but among like maybe the middle or upper middle class, etc., that there is definitely this kind of, you know, there are certain high schools that would prepare you for university, and then like it was like, like a machine prep schools, yeah. Yeah, and you would go through it, and 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 um, and then you know it was just expected. You know, if your parents have university degrees, then you have to get it too. And I mean, to me, it was very, very scary to to first of all, I changed um, um, my um, how do you say my program uh, like five times. Like I did 
let, let me name them. So I, I studied, quote unquote, which because I, I kept dropping out. So I never. What finished, do you mean you kept did, dropping out? Usually you drop yeah, out and don't go back. You went back? I did, I did philosophy in Leuven for um, uh, some, several months. I changed then to um, a teacher training program for elementary school teacher. Then I did a year as a volunteer in Norway. And then when I came back, I did African languages, which actually I, I passed to the second year. And then early in that second year, I changed to political sciences. And then the final thing was a quote unquote, a free student where I just kind of picked some classes that I liked and I wasn't pursuing a degree anymore. And then that was, that was the final bit. And then I, you know, I totally dropped out after that. Why did you keep kind of going back and forth? Because, I mean, I, I had this idea from, from high school. It was like, I'm going to find, like, there was this, you know, university. It was going to be this super cool environment where people are really passionate about the same thing that I'm passionate about. And I get to, like, drink from, like, the chalice of wisdom. <laughs> and I just never found it. I just I was so frustrated that I thought, oh, I'm just in the wrong, you know, I'm on the wrong track. I just you got to go on a quest. You got to go on a quest for the for the chalice of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I mean, that some great people, but it was kind yeah. of a little smattering like that. It was like digging for gold where it's like a little vein here and a little vein there. It was, yeah, it was, but, but like emotionally it was very hard because there was this taboo about dropping out. Like, you know, my high school teachers, you could tell they were like extremely disappointed and dismissive that I dropped out and people in the family, et cetera. It was, it was, yeah, really tough. My parents, I tried dropping out. Well, I had a startup. I had a startup for a few years. And so when I, when I was in high school, like fixing printers and stuff. And so when I was, when I went to school, uh, to college, um, I had this startup that I was doing during the day. So I was a full-time night student. I had no social life, six to 10 PM. And the, you know, the startup was doing good and I was experiencing a lot, but I couldn't travel. I couldn't go to certain meetings because I was in school all the time. So I tried dropping out. Um, but my parents, you know, kept putting me under this guilt trip that like, um, if you drop out, you know, we spent all this money on school, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I finished, uh, reluctantly. And from that day on, I've never, ever seen my degree. I don't even know where it is. I've never got a copy of it. I don't even What, what was your degree? Like what was it in? I so, yeah, it's weird, right? I actually um I'm so I actually have a bachelor of science in economics. So I'm like one of the few people that actually studied economics. But do you want to hear something interesting? I wouldn't call myself an economist today or even 10 years from now no matter how so how much experience or how smart I get. But I would call you one um and the thing is, too, and, you know, and you don't even go to school, but you ready for this, dude? When I throughout my four years and I'm an, I'm an uh, economics and finance major, bachelor of science, I can go on and get my doctorate in economics. You would have to call me Dr. Charlie. And I'd be like, it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but let me tell you how stupid this is. Not once, not once did the Austrian School of Economics ever come up in any class yeah i believe you yeah i mean it's it's could you believe that history is written by the victors and and uh, you know keynes went head to head against hayek and and you know keynes won because that was where the world was going is like you know this kind of managed economy and and uh, and justifying the money printing that was where the way was the world was going uh, it's it's sad. I've heard it many times from people all over the world who go to university and learn for learn economics, 
um, they, they, the focus is, is very, very empirical. It's very much like, um, you know, um, uh, based on statistics and, and, and those things are useful. For example, if you're in the investment world to, to model things and to try and predict where things are going short term. But if you want to think about the structural, you know, it's kind of like with health. If you want to think about health, you need to kind of look at things in a structural way and, and look at the long term and, and really try to get to the root of things. And, and there's not and, – and so like the, the London School of Economics, behavioral schools, uh, the Chicago School, like, you know, they just – their forte is less in the long term. I mean, Keynes said in the long run, everyone's dead. So who cares about the long run? Oh, I never heard that quote before. Yeah, somebody asked him, like, oh, but Mr. Keynes, like, you know, if your policies, if you keep doing this, what happens in the long run? And he's like, well, in the long run, we're all dead. I see his point. Uh, it's a terrible point. But the, but but I, I guess I see the point in, in his larger philosophy is that it was a shift to, like, short-term uh, economic policy that gave more power to governments. And that's why I think it was adopted. For example, like you said, it gave more power – um, for money and the switching off of standards and onto floating currency that could be manipulated and printed um, was that, I guess, part of that philosophy. And that's why governments were excited about it. And you saw that shift to the modern day, you know, Keynesian economics that the the capitalist world we follow. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's always a bit of a chicken egg. Like, you know, are, are the thought leaders the ones who um, who kind of you know, uh, come up with the ideas and then it trickles down. And, uh, is, is that how it goes or is it like bottom up where, um, you know, or, or where power is what drives where history goes. I think it's a combination of both, but there's very strong opinions on, on both sides of like, and, and, and among the intellectual elites, they love the idea that like, Oh, but no, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the famous scientists, like they are the ones who steer uh, where the world is going, and they're so responsible, and that's why they obviously need to have a lot of power and need to be close to the politicians. Exactly. And, um, the 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 I think, um, and it's a bold statement, but I think the separation of money and state started not being separate anymore. You know, started going ebbing closer together, and now. We, we basically have no separation of money and state anymore. Like it doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah, it's very fused. You're right. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, technically there's like some supposed separation of duties between the central bank and the government. But like, I mean, come no. on. The, the- when the president can go on Twitter and, and bully the chairman of the Federal Reserve, we have no separation anymore it's over well even on a technical level if you if you like you know they 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 basically the central bank sets the price for government bonds pretty much so so i mean they can make the price artificially cheap so they make it much cheaper for the government to borrow so like that's just you know two hands on the same belly i mean it's just it's um very clear that there's this mutually beneficial relationship. Like they, you know, low interest rates is beneficial for debtors. And who are the debtors? Well, they are the, the banks and the central banks and and, the, um, and the, the governments. Sorry, I mean, the, the banks and the governments are the debtors. And, and low interest rate policy, which we've seen, I mean, almost since the 1930s, um, is placed in the hands of the debtors. It was only Volcker, you could argue, who actually went against because he didn't want the economy to collapse, and so he jacked up interest rates in in you know early 1980. Um, 
yeah, that was kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> kind of an independent. And brief yeah. Um, but, but speaking of fundamentals, because you're right, the lever, so the, the levers, and this is a great segue into like, what's the difference for people who don't really understand of modern day money and, and, and Bitcoin. So you look at the levers of power, like you said, perfect example, dude, perfect example. The, you know, the federal reserve has the lever of, of, you know, like for example, with bonds and they're able to go and, and, and adjust the prices. That's a, that's a lever. Um, and that's a fundamental. So, so I, where I'm segueing here is I want to talk about the fundamentals of Bitcoin really quick, where, um, you wrote a phenomenal, you so see, you did a phenomenal AMA in 2015 and I encourage, I never encourage, I don't like to encourage people to visit Bitcoin.com, um, for a lot of other reasons I want to talk about on the show, but I will say this, that Google, uh, your, and I'll, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but your AMA in 2015 was a great um, reflection on our current, our current, um, world that we live in today in terms of Bitcoin. But I want to talk about really quick. So in 2015, you, you gave a great, um, you broke down like where Bitcoin was then and where you would see it in 2016. And you actually gave a great price price prediction too, but forget that for a second. Cause I don't want to talk about that, but you, you laid out five fundamentals or five reasons that you would, that, that you think in 2016, um, Bitcoin is going to grow and you're, you're largely accurate. So I want to, I want to go through each one with you one by one. And I want to ask you if you, you know, now we're at the end of 2019, do you see us going in the right direction with the same, um, fundamentals or the same reasons? The first, the first one, um, so you wrote that in 2016, you think, so you wrote in 2015 that you think in 2016, we're going to continue to grow. And the first reason you gave was that we're going to see an increase in volatility and security in traditional markets, stock, bonds, fiat money, um, making Bitcoin a fungible uh, safe haven um, and make it more attractive. This will make Bitcoin more attractive. Do you see that going into 2020? Yeah, I mean, global macro, like if you look at the economy at large around the world, like, yeah, I mean, populism is on the rise in politics. We, we've seen, I mean, uh, I don't want to say Latin America is on fire, but damn, like things are pretty hairy in almost every Latin American country. Uh, we have all this incredible tension between Hong Kong and China. Um, and in Europe, the government bond problem is is popping up again. I mean, it seems like uh, the U.S. in terms of stability is probably the best, you know, kind of the best house in a bad neighborhood. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think that and and gold is bubbling up. So I think we we haven't seen the extremes of volatility on the global level, but but we are seeing the signs of of I think I think you know the the cannery and the coal mine is already is already passed. Like something's up. Um, and, uh, and of course it's hard to time these things. Uh, but I do think we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for, you know, probably like stagflation where the economy stagnates while we still have inflation, uh, which is kind of the Keynesians. They don't believe that that e- that's even possible, but it happened of course in the, in the seventies. Um, or we can just see continued growth, like kind of artificially artificial growth and then, uh, still inflation pick up. Uh, and that's going to just make make people with a fixed income 
really angry. So yeah, I think there's a lot. There's a lot happening. Well, basically, the chickens of of QE are going to come to roost. Like we, we've been printing money like crazy since 2008 across the globe, and so you know after about 10 years of that, it's reasonable to assume that we're going to start seeing the effects. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned 
is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. Negative inflation rates are not sustainable. In 2015, uh, negative inflation wasn't even like a topic of mainstream conversation, and now it is. And I think that will be a huge trigger for us. Um, you know, and you look at the economies of Argentina, and I'm not, I, you know, other than from what I read, um, I'm, I don't really understand and I don't want to segue too much, but I don't really understand Argentina in, in the sense of like, you know, you had the crazy Cristina Fernandez and the whole, there was that whole mentality that was, um, very socialist. Um, and then that, that technocrat, I forget his name came to power a few years ago. And, you know, I remember that the, the bond markets and the currency markets were very, very happy with this guy because he was a technocrat and he was going to do very well for Argentina. And I was very bullish in Argentina and I just stopped paying attention for a few years. But then I see this guy didn't do anything. And then now Kirshner is, she's in power again. So what, I mean, kind of what happened? I don't want to spend too much time on it, but what happened? I don't, I'm confused. I wish I knew, honestly, like I haven't been following it too yeah, closely. Either. Me neither. I'm a little confused. It seems to me that Argentina uh, in particular seems to go through these 10 year cycles. Like it seems like, they really have trouble not falling back into old habits of, you know, populism and, and promising more than than they can afford and then trying to print their way out of the problems. Uh, it's really endemic. Like, I mean, I think Argentina is one of the countries that could benefit massively from a hard currency like Bitcoin, where you just cannot, you just can no longer use debasement of the currency as a way to to print yourself out of trouble. Um, the second, the second fund, the second reason you talked about were that you said that that Bitcoin fundamentals are stronger. So this one, I think, I agree with uh, very much. So it's continuing to grow. You talk about how Bitcoin was a scammy toy for geeks and hackers, and now we're looking at a technological innovation that deserves its own category next to electric cars and three D printing. Your words, not mine. Are we ever going to see a hockey stick type of chart? in this in terms of adoption and and fundamentals growing or are we just continue are we just going to see this steady growth over the next 5 or 10 years well i mean it'll depend on the macro environment like you know it's kind of like with gold like is gold going to be adopted massively like if you look back when when might that happen it's well it's when there's hyperinflation if there's ever a hyperinflation in a very large area of the world like china europe or or the us then yeah, you would see an absolute hockey stick in terms of adoption. Uh, but if if the inflation can be staved off somewhat, I think it'll be a bit more gradual. 
okay, so the 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 second to last, um, well, the third to last reason is the speculative lure of the asset. And that was very much so in 2015, 2016. You know, people are still very much burnt with the whole ICO market and shit coins and coins, you know, and you're seeing arrests every day still. Does the speculative lure still exist as much as it did? I mean, even going back to 2012, is it is it, you know, can you look at the speculative chart of Bitcoin and if you can quantify the, you know, the speculative lure, the speculative excitement, um, do you think that chart is a chart that's going to be continuing to go up over time or does it kind of well, balance I mean, itself out? Depends on your perspective. I mean, we're, we're up 100% versus 12 months ago and we're up 1000% versus the start of 2017. Like that's... I'm not no. debating that. I'm talking about more of like the 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 lure of of basically people's belief that that they're going to speculate on this asset and and it, there's enough of a belief that down the road it'll be higher. Um, but maybe that's I guess the, the the jury's out on that one. Who knows? Well, I, th- I think I think it that'll be just you know that'll come from you know the, the ultimately the price is going to be the bottom of the price range is defined by the value investors. They buy when it's cheap. They don't care about all the speculative rallies. They buy when it's cheap and they build a bottom in, in the in the and so they build the fundamental trend. And then the speculation is like a layer on top where uh, some of these people who speculate, they actually end up holding some for the long term. So it's kind of like a gateway drug. The speculation is a gateway drug to hodling. So I think that'll remain the case. And then and then the really the the last one, because the last, last one, you, you talked about um, the scalability, how that needed to be solved. And once that was solved, then we will have some sort of relief rally. And that ended up happening. But the block reward, this, the having, um, are, are havings priced in at this point? Or do we can we still rely on havings being this like catalyst towards the next bull market. Well, we've only had two real halvings while Bitcoin had a price. So uh, I think there's actually not enough information to know how this works. Uh, it's a very peculiar asset. It's a, it's a, you know, it's all very new. And like there, there just aren't assets like this in the world where mathematically the supply is, is then cut in half. Um, that is just kind of a new experiment. And, and I think that, you know, having two data points is just not enough to say that we have a trend. So I just, I can't, my hunch is that it has some effect, uh, but that it's, you know, when people feel bullish, the effect is overestimated. And when people feel bearish, the effect is underestimated. And I think that we're probably at a point where people are a little bit underestimating that the happening is coming. It's real. Um, and, and it, uh, but you have to keep in mind, like, you know, miners are not stupid either. Like they know that their income is going to get cut in half. Um, and people always think like, oh yeah, they'll mine like crazy before the halving, but they want to survive as well. Like they have some, you know, most of them have a bit of a longer term survival desire. And so, you know, what are they going to do? Maybe they will hedge because they know that, if the supply gets cut in half and we don't have a rally, they'll get smoked. And so they may actually be hedging, uh, which is, you know, short selling in a way. So they could be depressing the price for a while, uh, which doesn't mean that it's not a fundamental trend, yeah. but it could explain, for example, why we're kind of 
going sideways and down. And it could explain if we go down more why that's happening. Coin Center or someone, I forget, did a report. You probably have seen it that it, it showed um, where the selling pressure comes from on a day to day basis. And minor selling coins is not, you know, yes, it was a double digit number, but I, I, I thought it was always like 65, 70 percent of the selling pressure, but it's not even close to that. No, but I mean, you know, there's you can a miner can have an account at BitMEX and short it there. I mean, so and there's you know there's 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 more ways to hedge these days than there were in the past. I'm not saying this is the major thing. I'm just saying like, you know, it's important to try and not be naive and and think like you know kind of try and really step in the miner's shoes and and think what would you do? Um, and it's not that obvious that they would just. Keep all the coins at this point. You know what it comes down to? Um, and you alluded to it. Um, Bitcoin is, my belief, is one of the largest socioeconomic experiments really the world has ever seen. But it's an experiment, right? And so as humans, and I'd like you to comment on this if you can, as humans, we want instant gratification. We want something now. We also yeah. don't like unknowns. We're, the biggest fear is fear is the unknown. And so... Um, it's interestingly when I tell you this, but there are some people that when I was trying to like talk to them about Bitcoin, you know, they said to me, they would say, Charlie, I don't want to be my own bank. There's that fear of the unknown. Um, and so it's interesting that, that we talk about Bitcoin as, as an experiment, because like you said, we look at, you know, miners and all these things are unknowns for us. The havings, they're unknowns. There's not data. People are uncomfortable with unknowns. They want, almost they want, I hate to say it, but they want the governments to like control, stabilize and, and manipulate currency. Um, and that's very much so like something that we grew up with in our textbooks. That's a generational thing. Um, do you have any comment on that? Well, yeah, it is true. I mean, like it's probably one of the... Um, one of the what is it again the 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 pyramid of needs like we need safety we we just I never heard it. of that what's the pyramid of needs yeah maslow hierarchy of needs yeah yeah god i learned so much on my own show it's this just psychological model that at the bottom there's physiological needs and then and then right after that safety and then it's love and then it's esteem and then it's self actualization but that's the top of the pyramid but really the bottom is the foundation and so if you don't if you don't have safety then uh, it's hard to get your higher needs met. Like that's what people, and so like, yeah, financial safety or, and so even though you and I may think like, oh, but running your own bank, that's actually safety. Uh, for a lot of people, it's like, no, that's scary. I feel a lot safer if my money's in the bank or if, you know, if, if the government takes care of me and and that's a process. I mean, we, we basically, the early adopters have to show that it's possible and that it's pretty easy to do. And I think now with collaborative custody, there's kind of like a, there's kind of a. Ooh, uh, collaborative model, custody. Right? I never heard yeah. that before. Yeah. I mean, it's this idea that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to you know, store all your own keys, but you don't either have to trust one third party to store the keys. You can have a multi-sig setup where um, that's more fail safe because you have a key, they have a key, maybe a third party, another party has a key. And so if one of us loses a key, we can still recover. So we're like working together and we don't have to trust one single party to do all the work. Uh, so you don't have to trust yourself, but you don't also have to trust that one bank to do it all. So I think that's kind of where custody is going to go. Uh, and, 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 you know, of course, 
user interface. We need some things need to become user, more user friendly. But I do think that the market can come up with solutions that will, you know, kind of prove to be better than FDIC insured inflationary bank accounts. We're not trained to challenge our thoughts and beliefs as as, you know, whatever generation or modern day global citizens um, the majority of the world were not trained to challenge those things. And then the ones who do, um, you know, we're almost incentivized to not challenge. Although nowadays I feel like it, it, it's changing and we are incentivized to challenge and to question. Um, but like you and I talked about, like even like someone like Spinoza in the 1400s um, who was kicked out of the Jewish community in, in Amsterdam because he was questioning, you know, uh, his beliefs and a lot of religions don't allow you to 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 question, but there are a lot of things today. Um, you mentioned the church earlier, right? And how the churches and how uh, the universities had the libraries. So it's very interesting how you you reminded me that these places were the centers of power, but also knowledge. To to have strong opinions about something, especially when it comes to Bitcoin and economics, you have to be very well grounded, and you've you know, been independent and on your own for, for a very long time. A lot of our listeners share same experience with you and I, and I know this because they've reached out to me. So the question I have for you is, and for the listeners and for myself, what type of things do you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that kind of keep you grounded? Um, you and I have talked privately about therapy. I, I go to therapy um, a few days a week and things like that. But what are some other things that people can do um, when they're going through like transitions in their lives, it's it's hard to yeah I don't know I guess uh, let me not let me not try and give this kind of generic advice because like every every you know situation is different and also like age is is a factor as well and like depends on your circumstances but like what what I've done over the years is I guess I mean in my teenage years I would do a lot of drawing like I have a lot of drawings that in hindsight were actually very therapeutic um, and so I think that art. And kind of some kind of creative expression of whatever's going on emotionally is 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 helpful. Uh, and then over time, I've just um, just found people that are just safe to be around and where you can just be vulnerable and, and share what you're feeling. Um, and so it doesn't have to be a therapist. So that that's been helpful. And then um, uh, and I guess this is kind of to compensate for. Because I I think that you know if if you grow up and you just have like a, you know healthy family life and there's like you know safe people around then then that probably should come pretty natural. But for me, it was kind of something that I had to you know figure out from scratch almost. Um, and so um, so I would say and obviously you know like music and all those things were definitely uh, a big parts of like growing up and trying to like trying to find people that um that i could kind of recognize myself in or that i could look up to or that had experiences that resonated with me um and um and gradually i did start therapy about 10 years ago uh, i've gone through like a bunch of therapists like i just kind of you know would try one and then sometimes it would be a few months or sometimes it would be a few years um but it, it's hard to find a good therapist and 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 what I'm trying to do is basically to be in tune with my 
myself like what what are, what are my needs and like and so the first if you want to get your needs met you need to like be able to identify what they are so a big part for me was like, like learn to slow down and put into words what's maybe bothering me or what's going on and then like once i have that then it's a lot easier to kind of um to kind of see you know how to go from there um and then and then there's also a bunch of like kind of negative sounding things that have helped me uh, one is something that I call relationship hygiene, where you just you just try and you know if you consistently feel um, very tense or anxious around certain people, then you can you can dial down the amount of time that you spend with them. Oftentimes, not always, but you or or you can plan for it to to make a transition. Uh, and it doesn't mean that these are bad people or evil or whatever. It just means that you know there's no some no. You're right. Um, your health that you need to you need to kind of have a bit more me time, quote unquote, or more time with other types of people. So that was definitely a, a big part of codependency and you know, 15 years for me. Code, codependency is something that I struggle with as well. Um, or I do struggle with it constantly. Um, you know, I grew up, I was very codependent of my family and of my community. Uh, and when I left, I, was very co- codependent of my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time, uh, very, uh, you know, to a point where it's unhealthy. Um, and it's not a good idea to substitute one thing for another. You know, same thing with like drugs. Someone will substitute one drug for another or like in the sake of prison. That's why every prisoner, every inmate is in the gym all day because they're substituting, you know, dealing drugs or whatever for for working on the gym. Um, but, you know, I codependency you're right, is, is an issue. But at the same time, you know, if, if you didn't know me and I told you something, you'd, you'd say, wow, this Charlie's codependent. For example, I won't travel without my wife. I won't go even one night. I won't travel anywhere, business trip, without her. Um, I don't, and now, you know, from a, from a healthy perspective, that's unhealthy. You know, you're supposed to have me time. You, you shouldn't be codependent. However, uh, on the flip side, on my perspective, they I was constantly being pulled apart from her, and I spent a, you know a year and a half sleeping without her in a cell, uh, in a prison cell. And so I tell myself, "Fuck codependency. I'm not spending another night away from my wife." Oh man, I, that's so. I mean, obviously, I don't think that's unhealthy at all. What you're talking about, honestly, like, and and I don't think. It even, you know, even that label of codependency, I don't, I don't know, like, does that apply or not? Um, I don't like, know. Like what I meant with me time was like, if I can connect with myself, that's me time. But it doesn't mean that I have to be alone to do that. If I'm around someone who loves me and respects me, and then, then I can have that while they're in the same room. You know what I mean? Like, I can even have it in a conversation with them because I'm, I'm basically or they're like helping me figure out what I'm feeling and vice versa. Like, so I definitely don't think like there is this kind of abstract virtue of like, Oh, well, you know, we all need to spend time alone. Like, uh, you know, I think that sometimes solitude can have some function in some situations, but I don't know. I I really don't want to, I hope I'm not like, you're not, you're not at all. You're, you're not at all. And and this is just a back and forth conversation. Um, Mm. I guess the point that I was leading towards is you and I, um, are largely, um, success stories and, you know, I don't use the word success, but in terms of like our self and our personal 
development in our personal lives, um, growing up in very, very, very toxic relationships and then leaving those relationships. You and I have both done that. Um, and I, y- you helped me do that, you know, when I, cause I, it was very much more recent for me. And so reading your writings and talking to you, you helped me do that. So I guess, and I don't normally do this Tur, but I want to talk to the listeners for a minute and say to the listeners who are in unhealthy and toxic relationships there, you are not alone. You are not alone. And there are people out there to help. Um, myself and Tur have both been through probably what you're going through, if not worse. And look at us today. So feel free to reach out to either of us. Tur has written on this subject extensively. I have not. I've talked about it, but I'm still not not at the point yet where I, you know, I, where I'm, at, you know, I could talk about it um, a lot more. But I just wanted to bring up this topic. I know it's not Bitcoin, but I think it's it's so important. Um, especially yeah, that you and I are on the. Yeah, if if you grow up in a, you know, in a family where it's really hard to, f- sorry, <clears throat> where it's really hard to feel safe, it's it's really tough to like to even identify that that's happening. That it's not like oh something's wrong with me, right? I mean, like I'm you know maybe I'm I have some genetic defect that I always feel depressed or that I always feel anxious. Like it's 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 already such a challenge to to kind of say like well you know. Uh, maybe and 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 again, it's it doesn't have to be a blame game, but it's like maybe these relationships are part of why I'm feeling so miserable. And so let's let's try and like play with that and 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 that's scary. I mean, both you and I, like, yeah, when 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 we talked, um, probably I'm thinking, I think 2013 or 14. I think maybe it was 2014 more. Uh, I mean, that was the kind of that was one of the toughest years for me in that regard. And I think that because that was one of the toughest years for you, it was actually, I think, pretty hard for us to talk often because it was just like, just so, at least for me, it was so overwhelming what was happening that I, that it was hard to like have space to, to, to be there for other people. Um, but definitely, so, so I guess I, I definitely relate to what you're saying about that. It's, it can be very, difficult and isolating because it's also like at least for me it was like i mean it's almost like you're leaving a cult in the sense that um this has been your universe your reality for so many years and all of a sudden you're like well maybe i need to leave this maybe i need to like really make a big change and kind of you know strike out on my own or in a different way but you just don't know what's out there because this is what you've always the air that you've been breathing um and so, um, to me, it was difficult and scary once I was kind of decided, okay, I want to move on. I want to try different things to then, to then be like, well, but now what is, what works? Like, what is something that's healthy or what is that? You know what I mean? Like, what is healthy? What is a healthy relationship? I don't know what health is. Yeah. Or like, what does it even mean to be married? Like, you know, what is the kind of a healthy marriage? Like that's such a, such a, it's like a almost like an impossible math math question sometimes. That's you know, but it's experience. It's 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 kind of going through that and being able to be open minded. And I feel like when you when you're going through that process, you have going independent. You have a lot, you know, you have a lot more of an open mind. You have a lot less to lose. So to kind of bring it all full circle, um, you're able to uh, stay unjaded. Um, I've noticed that, you know, following your Twitter, you don't get jaded as a lot of other people do, especially ones who've been writing and involved in this space in Bitcoin uh, for the past, you know, almost decade. So um, 
the question I have for you is, do you feel that your life experience, you know, of what you went through and having to forge your trailblaze, you know, imagine like with a sword going through the forest and having to cut the trees and not see through the through the path or whatever, um, has that enabled you to to have a, a much more grounded and better understanding of Bitcoin and, and crypto in general? Has that enabled you to to kind of cut through the weeds of, of the FUD and the bullshit that people say and allow you to write and to to talk and to you know, see the future. I think so. Cause I, I feel like I've in a way had to like think a lot of things from the ground up. And so that means I really had to go to like, well, what is real, which is like really go to the, the bottom line of things and, and try and like find ways to identify, like, how do you even know what the bottom line is in, in any circumstance? And so, um, I think it's, it's, you know, doing doing that work, it's helped me to be to be a better judge of people. And then, to me, people are often the proxies for information. Like someone who's who's trustworthy and reliable and has integrity, they will have they'll be a better source of information. Um, and then, I guess also the the work and therapy and stuff. It just it does help me to just have a more compassionate outlook to kind of see that there is, um, you know, sometimes things happen for people, and I don't need to take personal what they're you know, even if they're talking to me or they're insulting me or something like it doesn't mean that they don't know me, for example. So like they're actually by definition could not be talking to me because they don't know me. So it's something about them that uh, has triggered oh. this, whatever, you know, their anger or whatever it is. So it doesn't mean that I never get upset, but it does help me to kind of take a step back and be like, you know, do I really want to get into this online wrestling match, for example, or also the, the slowing down I was talking about, like I can kind of like put it down and like say, I don't have to answer right now. I can answer tomorrow or I can just answer not at all. Like I'm, I'm a free person. So yeah, I definitely think that um, kind of, you know, it, it's helped me to navigate. And also I guess, you know, it's horrible. Like, I mean, in my case, I, I broke from my family. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a really, you know, difficult thing uh, and, and, uh, I would, I would not say, oh, you have to do it for this one little benefit. Cause I, it's, it doesn't weigh emotionally, but it is true that I feel like I don't, I don't owe any allegiance to any kind of historic tribal system. Like I, I can just be, um, a free person in how I think, and I don't have to think like, oh, but this idea, if I really get into this, maybe my uncle is going to hate it and I'm going to get into a fight with him. Like, it's just kind of, you know. No, I, but I that's what, that's the biggest uh, reason that my family tells me to come back is they say, you have this allegiance to our tribe. Right. Um, but I don't. Like blood is thicker than water. And th there's a lot of like arguments that are made that way. Um, but this is the thing, Tur. I, <clears throat> as much as the unfortunate things that happen in our lives, uh, my life and my wife's life, um, Going to prison showed us, both of us, that in this case, in our, in my case, uh, water was in fact thicker than the blood. So I was able to experience a real life situation where my, my family had choices to make, hard choices, whether it was going to be, you know, like stand by me or not. And they chose to not. So I have that in the back of my head. Most people don't. Do you have memories i guess like they i don't want you to say specific ones but i guess that help you usher you through because look dude like i still struggle my wife does too i still struggle with leaving my family i mean just last yeah, week i just had a, a cry in my car by myself it happens 
Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, like I, I like, I guess re- I, I haven't written a lot about this. I have like one article on medium and then recently on Twitter, I said a few things about it, but to me, it's like an amputation. It's just like, you've gone through and like, you've lost a leg and it's like, yeah, of course you can have some help and some doctors can do some things, but like, it's hard and, and you're going to continue to struggle with it. Um, so, but in terms of, um, I think what you were talking about is kind of like, um, Wait, what was your question again? Because I want to make sure I, I I answer your question. It was something about you did though. No, but but wasn't it about like how you know what about the um, oh it's some experiences of like um, where kind of in their words they say blood is thicker than water, but then in reality what you experience is actually you know these these like we'll always be there for you quote unquote. That's not always true. Like I would say yes. Like I mean. Uh, and that was that was part of what was so scary about quitting university is that I basically got kicked out at some point. It was like, you know, the narrative of like, oh, we'll always be there for you. It felt like it had totally shattered. And I, I just didn't know. I don't know. It's just it was just very, very scary experience of like, oh, my God, I, my family said they would always be there. And now they're not. Um, and, and, and I've 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 seen that kind of over and over. And I think it's, it, it relates to, um, I don't know. I, it's, I, I don't want to generalize, but, um, um, it, it is a very, it is extremely difficult experience to go through where you, 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 you were hoping that they care about you as a person and that it's not depending on, you know, whatever, like who your wife is or, you know, what job you do that, you know, that regardless, there's this kind of unconditional love for you. And then you experience kind of the opposite where based on something that is pretty arbitrary, all of a sudden you're like rejected from the tribe. Um, at least. That, and so that, that's been hard for me to, to like kind of come to terms with. There are some value, you know, you, um, I want to kind of tell you something that I learned in prison. Um, and one of the most important things that I learned was, to challenge my rational thoughts and so sorry to challenge my irrational thoughts and so there's a there's a you know like I'm not a brainwashing but there's like a well some people call it brainwashing but there's a a a course a program that you have to a program that you have to go through to almost get released from prison and it's a nine month program and it's basically a program um, that no one really knows about this it's not talked about in the media but most inmates go through it. And it's a nine month program and it's basically to rid you of, of criminal mentality. And basically what they, oh, it's crazy, dude. It's insane. Oh, you don't, most people don't know about this. So basically, so one of the things they do is they put out all these arbitrary rules. For example, you can't read fiction between eight and 4 PM. Uh, you only read newspapers. You can't sleep. If they catch you with your eyes closed, you don't get released the day you're supposed to get released. Like stupid things, like the dumbest rules, but they're not. They're supposed to be rules that make no sense because the whole point is the administration wants to teach you to arbitrarily follow rules that don't make any sense to you. Um, but then they teach you to challenge irrational thoughts. So one of the those irrational thoughts for me was, like you said, you have un- you have unconditional love from your family. And so I, one the the reason I had a lot of, uh, in prison, I had a lot of anger towards my family, a lot of uh, resentment, couldn't get over that. But you know, Tur, that resentment and anger is very unhealthy, no matter what the situation is. 
but it's not for the other people, for yourself. You can't go through life having anger built up. It's not healthy for relationships with your wife. You talk about, you know, how to be married. So one of the things I learned how to do was to basically say, all right, here is a thought or a belief that I have that I've had my whole life. And you're going to have actions and reactions based on that. So before you have those actions and reactions, the point of the training, and it was one of the only things that I actually liked about it, what they train you to do is the point in your brain where you have the belief and then before you act or react based on this belief, how do you stop that, challenge that, and then hopefully have a different reaction? So, I mean, the whole point was it was like, okay, so you're a drug dealer and you're on the outside and your friend comes to you and says, hey, um, can you sell these drugs for me and uh, sell this heroin for me? And then so your first thought is, okay, I'll only sell this heroin for this week, but then I can use the money to buy my daughter a gift. I love my daughter. I want to buy her a gift, so I'm going to sell the heroin. The whole idea is challenge that rational thought. Haves, you know, haves need, you know, the word I have to, I need to, I must, I should. All these things are irrational thoughts. So challenge them. You know, there's a joke like, you're, you're shooting all over yourself. Like, don't say should. You know, it's like, why do you get angry? Most of the time we get angry because we think someone should be doing something and they don't. Oh, my friend should have invited me out for dinner tonight. He didn't. He ditched me. So I'm going to be fucking mad at him. Challenge that thought. Challenge that process. So it was very, I'm not going to say it was easy. It took me months and months and months, but I was able to, I feel like, challenge that uh that belief that I've had since I was a kid. And I guess, do you have that same belief, right? Is that you have unconditional love. Once I was able to get over that and say to myself, there's no such thing as that. Um, And I know people listening to the show are going to think I'm crazy, but I don't believe there's unconditional love. I think you have to work for your love. And and I'll tell you, Tur, that has made my marriage a lot better because I have to work for my wife's love. She shouldn't automatically love me. And it's a constant battle, not a battle, but it's a constant something that you have to work on and grow and continue to, to do. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying, it definitely definitely resonates that like there are these core, it's it's almost like, you know, our brain is like an operating system and we build it. When yeah. we're and it has these like kind of core, you know, uh, axioms that are just kind of wired in there. It's like, this is true, that is true, that is true. And then we build on that. And I think that, I guess I would add to what you're saying is like these irrational beliefs. I think, um, and I think behavioral theory uh, or behavioral therapy often kind of talks about it that way. But I think there's a level deeper where uh, it's very, I think it's very, very helpful, at least to me it has been, to, to compassionately understand why those beliefs were there in the first place. And, and, and what's always the case is that we came up with them and we cultivated them and they became our coping and survival mechanisms because, uh, because it's in the word, like because they help us survive. They helped us survive through our childhood. If I'm sure if you didn't have the belief growing up that my family loves me unconditionally, things would have turned out differently. And maybe this belief is what kept you as safe as you could have been at the time. And so uh, to me, that's been helpful to kind of not get into a spiral of like, oh, self-attack. Like, why, why do I have all these beliefs that don't make sense? It's more like, no, my operating system was very healthy to deal with the reality of growing up. But now I chose to be in a different environment 
and I want to rewire that system. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Uh, rewiring the system is a very good term to explain what I was talking about. So you have that ability to like take 10 minutes of what I was trying to say and put it into like four words. But that's, that's what I was saying. Rewire the system. Most of us don't want to do that, but we have to because you're born with these beliefs that may or may not be true. And you have to constantly be challenging them. If you don't, then you're never going to grow personally. Yeah. And I think it, it also kind of explains why, you know, just the kind of the, the huge range of uh, kind of, you know, adults that I, I would say like maturity, like emotional maturity, it's such a spectrum. And like it, you can have in the same family, extremely different, like extreme differences in emotional maturity. And I think it's because like, if you don't question your core beliefs, you kind of you always remain emotionally maybe like a seven-year-old or like a 12-year-old or something. Whereas if you do question it, which is in a way, it's like, it's one big decision. It's like, I am going to question my beliefs because I want healthy relationships or whatever. And then that's a kind of a journey that never stops. Like you can always keep growing and there's always beliefs that you can kind of wonder like, damn, like, why was I so mad? Or why was I so, you know, why did it come up? Or so, so I, I find that like kind of, you know, there's like consolation in that where it's like, you know, there's always room for growth and, and, and I can always learn from other people too, because they have their own growth journey. Turdemister, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I think the valuable lessons that our listeners will learn today is not just about Bitcoin, but hopefully they read between the lines or they listen between the lines and realize that we are talking about things like tribalism, um, toxicity, negativity. That's what we're talking about. Um, and so constantly challenge your irrational thoughts and keep an open mind, even if you don't agree. And the last thing is I want to say, don't just listen to reply, listen to learn Tur again, really thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope to see you soon and, and to hang out with you. And I'm really glad to see that your life is going well and growing because um, I look at your life and, you know, um, makes my heart sing a little bit because, um, I want to, I want people who, um, who we go through similar things. I want us all to succeed and to all be, to all be really, you know, to do really well. It's it's similar situation when, when you have someone who, um, who you love, right. You want them to succeed and do well. So I continue to, to to follow you in that. So thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my genuine pleasure, really. And uh, and uh, kudos to you for all the work that you've done and what you've been through. And um, and really, um, you know, not just how you went from surviving to thriving, really. Like, I can tell, like, you know, even just in the conversation, like, you're you're so much more able to just genuinely listen or to be, be present. And, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I can tell you really thank built you. this great life for yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire 
from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power. 